Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah chapter 20. I think it probably started perhaps when I was in high school, I had a part in the school play in my junior year, and it seems like I had this same dream several times in my 20s. And it had to do with having to either be in a play or getting up to preach. And I couldn't find my pants. <laughs> and you spend the whole dream trying to find, where are my pants? And of course, it's getting closer and closer, whether it be the school play or whether it be a message that I would be bringing getting closer and closer to the time to go on. And you go through this maze of running all over the place to different rooms. That's a nightmare. That is a nightmare because there's no way I was going to get up without my pants. Well, now you laugh, but Isaiah chapter 20, we do have a similar situation. If I was the title of the message this morning, it would be the pantless prophet. I want you to notice beginning in verse 1, In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, that Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian prisoners and the Ethiopian captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia their expectation and of Egypt their glory. And the inhabitants of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation. Whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will turn our hearts and our thoughts to some truths from this passage that the Lord God has for us. Lord, for those that are lost, may they see their need for the Son of God, that they might turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the salvation that only he can give. We pray for believers today. May we understand the importance of walking according to your word. Have your way in our lives today, and we'll thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. This is one of those passages of Scripture that you hardly ever hear anybody preach from. It's kind of obscure, these six verses. Now, actually, they go along with chapter 19. You get to the end of the chapter, and notice he says in verse 23, In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria. 
even a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Now, in the passages in the chapter before that and even before that, the prophet was called to preach to Israel because they were not right with God. They had not walked according to his word. And the Assyrians were threatening them at that time. However, Israel decided that they would put their trust in Egypt and Ethiopia to take care of them. Even though the Egyptians had been trouble for them before, yet they did not think too much about that. They thought somehow numbers was the key, and numbers has never been the key. The key is obeying God. Now, when you read this passage, it's, as I said, it's one of those obscure ones. It's one of those scripture that we read and we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about. But I do not believe that he walked around totally exposed from the waist down for three years. I don't believe God would have given that command, even as I read commentaries on this to find out what they had to say. They did not believe that he would be uncovered all the way from the waist down in his walking around publicly for three years. As a matter of fact, in the same book, we've got a definition of nakedness for us. If you turn over, keep your hand here, I'm coming back to it. Turn over to chapter 47 of the book of Isaiah. In chapter 47, beginning in verse 2, the scripture says, Take the millstones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers, thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, the shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. Here he likens the, cover, the uncovering of the thigh to that word nakedness. When God talks about being clothed and about being modest, obviously nakedness should not be a part of being modest. So therefore, the covering should at least cover the thigh. Well, any of the britches that he had on, of course, he was to take those off, but he would have been walking around in a garment where the thigh was clearly seen in his nakedness, giving a message to Israel of their disobedience to God. I mean, the culture had turned so wickedly against the word of God. I don't know how people miss this in reading their Bible. God's word, God expected and God demanded to be obeyed. We spend most of our time in churches today, it seems, trying to explain away the word instead of obeying the word. As a matter of fact, you'll find there are a lot of preachers that seem to have this idea that if you're trying to live according to the word of God, that somehow you are in some kind of bondage. And yet, as I've said many times from this pulpit, the Lord Jesus obeyed everything in the word of God. And you don't, I don't believe the Lord Jesus was in bondage. Even the psalmist said, I will walk at liberty because I keep thy precepts. There is freedom in walking according to God's word. And by the way, it keeps you from falling into bondage to sin and disobedience. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And that's from Romans chapter 6. We had a strange command that's given to the prophet of God. I mean, most young men like to stand up and yell a little bit and holler a little bit. 
That's, uh, matter of fact, bring some good oratory in there so people be wowed by what you have to say. Here, the prophet of God was told that he was to uncover himself and uh, for three years. And for three years, he would be an object lesson and the same message would be given all three years. I'm reminded of the story of a church that called a young man to come be their pastor. He got up on that Sunday morning and he preached a message and it was a fine message. People bragged on him as he was going out the door after the service is over. That night he got up to preach again and he brought exactly the same message that he had brought that morning. They thought this is kind of strange. On Wednesday night when he got up to preach, he brought the same message he had brought Sunday morning and Sunday night. Well, now they were concerned. On Sunday morning, the next Sunday morning, he preached the same message that he preached the last three services. They thought this is never going to do. So they went, one of the deacons went to the preacher and said, don't you have any other messages? You brought the same message Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and this Sunday morning, don't you have any other messages? He says, sure I do. They said, well, why do you keep bringing the same message? He says, well, when you obey what I said the first time, then we'll go on to message number two. Unfortunately, a lot of people look at church like they did, that a message is just a message, come, like it, don't like it, whatever, and go on to the house, and they remain unmoved no matter how the message is preached or what requirement it may be brought out that God expects of his children. They just miss it. But imagine giving the same sermon every day for three years with the same message. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would we even stop to consider what he's talking about today? Because God's word is still true. All of it is still true, and people miss it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. God's word is profitable that we be everything that we ought to be as believers. Thank God I'm saved and nothing can take that from me. He's given me eternal life. He has forgiven all my sin. But God wants us to walk like he's redeemed us. Our life ought to give testimony of the marvelous change that God makes in our life. But we find that the modern church today has the same problem that Israel had back in the Old Testament in that they thought God's word may have been nice, but we're going to walk according to our own thinking. And God's just going to have to be satisfied with it. And they lost the land with that kind of an attitude. But upon looking at this passage, and upon meditation and consideration, we find a few lessons for us. Now, the first one is this, and that's the reliability of Scripture. He mentions right in the very first verse, he says, In the year that Tartan came unto Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it. You say, now how does that teach us the reliability of Scripture? Well, there's a name there, that name Sargon, the king of Assyria. For almost 2,000 years, Sargon was lost to history. They had not found any record that he, had, apart from what was in Scripture, they had not found any archaeological evidence of a Sargon. 
other Assyrian kings were mentioned, like uh, Tiglath-Pileser and Sennacherib and Shalmaneser. But Sargon was one of those names that the Bible critics would bring up, say, we've not found any Sargon. Now, obviously, had they been Bible believers, that wouldn't have bothered them. They found it in Scripture, and that would have been enough. After all, that scripture was given a long time ago, but no, they used it to mock the Bible and to mock the accuracy of the Bible. Well, in 1842, a French consular agent stationed in Iraq heard of a former palace of Assyrian kings that was buried in the sands, and he decided to have that site excavated with his own money. He found the city, found some cuneiform tablets, that were finally deciphered, and there in those cuneiform tablets was the name Sargon. Well, there was a historical record about him. And by the way, the fact that it was in the scripture means a whole lot more to me than something written on a tablet. Because God's word is always true. And if you can't trust it in the historical things that it says, then you really can't trust it in the spiritual things that it says. It was true. Bible critics denied the Bible because it spoke of the Hittites in the Old Testament. And you go back to the 19th century, they finally found writings mentioning them because for a long time they couldn't find any record of these people called the Hittites. Then in the 20th century, they even excavated a Hittite capital, which was in northern Turkey, the northern Turkey area as we know it today. 1800s, critics mocked the Bible because of Luke's statement in Luke chapter 2. When he was talking about the taxing of Israel, he mentioned certain Roman politicians and others that were down there. They didn't have a record of those. They couldn't find those anywhere but in the scripture. But sure enough, it came along, do enough archaeological research, and you'll always find that the Bible is accurate and true, not only in the names, but also in the timing of those men living and reigning over their particular areas. Again, the Bible makes these Bible critics look silly. There was one Bible critic by the name of Sir William Ramsey, and he wanted to prove that the Bible was false. He decided after reading the book of Acts that there was absolutely no way that the Apostle Paul could have traveled through the Mediterranean in the days of the book of Acts, like it is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. So he took a year off. He was, gonna, he was firm that he was going to prove the Bible wasn't true. When the year was over, Sir William Ramsey had become a Christian because he found that it only could have happened exactly like Luke described it in the timing of all his travels. And by the way, Sir William Ramsey not only became a believer but became an apologist. An apologist is not someone who apologizes. Apologist is someone who defends a a particular doctrine or work like the Bible, and he became a very firm apologist. I've got several of his books in my library, and they're interesting in themselves. Now, the only problem that I have, it was written back in the 1800s originally, and a lot of times those, those people's writings were as dry as dust. You know what I'm saying? But if you stick with it, you read through it, and you study it, you get an awful lot of good material. Just in reading this chapter, we're reminded of the reliability of Scripture. 
being right in everything it says about physical detail. It is also right about everything that it says in spiritual detail. You can trust this book. For instance, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Friend, if you don't come to Jesus, you can't get to the Father. That's just the way it is. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one's getting to heaven without being born again. You must be born again. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's how. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You must have Christ as your Savior. The Bible has proved itself true over and over again. The only reason someone would doubt it today is because they don't want to believe it. And they show themselves to be the fools every time. You've got the reliability of Scripture we see in this passage. Not only that, the requirement of a holy walk by God's people. Do you understand that we are walking sermons? You look at Isaiah here in this passage. He obviously for three years was a walking sermon. He continued to give the illustration that became very clear to his people that Egypt's not going to save you and the Ethiopians aren't going to save you. Assyria, yes, is giving you a hard time. But you see, God's people were to put their trust in the Lord, not in the Assyrians. Later on, when Egypt would come up against them, they'd put their trust in the Assyrians and the Assyrians didn't help them then either. God always meant for his people to put their trust in the Lord. Understand that Judah trusted in the Egyptians to protect them. Even when you get to the book of Jeremiah in chapter 42, the governor over the land who had been a Babylonian governor uh, had been killed by some rebel Israelites. And so some of the people were very concerned that that Nebuchadnezzar would come in. He already controlled the land and that he would slaughter a bunch of the Jews. And they said, what should we do? Jeremiah, just tell us. This is in chapter 42 of the book of Jeremiah. He says, just tell us, should we go down to Egypt and be protected there? Or should we stay where we're at? Whatever the Lord tells you, that's what we'll do. Well, the Bible tells us in verse chapter 43 as well that he goes to prayer and he prays for these people. And God makes it very plain. He's to tell those people, you go down to Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar will come down and get you. The Egyptians won't take care of you. But if you'll stay where you're at, God will be your protection. So Jeremiah went to those people and he said, all right, here's what God has said. Don't go down to Egypt. Stay where you're at. The Lord God will be your protection. And they responded to Jeremiah by saying, we are not going to obey the word that you spoke unto us. They would not receive God's message. They went down to Egypt. And sure enough, the Babylonians went down there and took them out. God's word is always right, always right. But foolish people, they don't think that God's word is that important. We can just decide by our own initiative what we want to do. There's a way which seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Scripture tells us that twice. 
in Proverbs 14, 12, and in Proverbs 16, 25. He repeats it twice, so we'll get it. And we still don't seem to get it. We still trust our own ways, and that leads to a lot of problems. Now, remember that Egypt had kept them in bondage years ago. Egypt was never their friend. Never their friend. And yet they kept wanting to trust Egypt. In chapter 19, verses 20 through 25, he was also promising God's judgment on Egypt. Also has some marvelous promises for Egypt later on as well. But at this point, Assyria is nowhere close to Egypt. They're nowhere close. And understand, it wasn't like flying in a bunch of uh, helicopters or, and, and dropping the tanks down on them. There weren't any tanks. There was nothing like that. It was a major move to take an army up. And march at hundreds upon hundreds of miles in order to get to do that kind of a battle. But you know, God has no trouble fulfilling his word. He always does it according to the way that he says it. I mean, after all, would you understand this? That the God of heaven judges nations. Thank you. The God of heaven... The God who is love judges nations. 2001, the most powerful nation on earth, was brought to its knees in one day by 19 men. 19 men who didn't have a dirty bomb. They didn't have guns. They didn't have grenades. 19 men. 9-11, 2001. 19 men took over three planes and stopped all the airfare in the United States for over a month. 19 men did that to the most powerful nation on the planet. And it makes you wonder, why hadn't that ever happened before? And I have no doubt because God had had his hand on this country and protected this country, but enough is enough. And God, all he had to do is just remove his hand of protection for a moment. And 19 men could put 330 million people in fear. Change their lifestyles completely. God does judge nations, and he always has. Even today, we're a nation in turmoil. We've heard how terrorists have come across our borders because we've got no one to stop it. We've got a bunch of idiot young adults who think that somehow it's a good thing to just allow anybody in at any time, whether they like us or not. They don't even know how to reason. They don't even know how to think. Absolutely amazing that people could be so dumb. But that's part of the result of our higher education system today which has not been about educating. It's been about propagandizing. Had to think about that word to get it all out. Our churches have become worldly. Second Chronicles 7.14, it's a wonderful verse. I believe it worked today. It worked today, but it requires something of the people. And it doesn't require it of everybody. It simply requires it of those who are saved. If my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. My people, 
from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. You see, people are willing to pray, but people are not willing to turn from their wicked ways. Let me tell you something else they're not willing. They're not willing to call their ways wicked. What determines whether or not man's ways are wicked? Right here. It's what God says in his word, both in action, in word, in motive. We're to be right with him. He wants us right with him. But until we get honest about our own condition, call it what God calls it. Until that happens, we're going to continue in the same turmoil and mess that we've been in for some time. And here's the sad thing. Some are trusting the Republicans to get us out of it. That's not going to happen. Are you for the Democrats? No, they're the ones that got us into this mess. No, I'm kidding. The politicians don't have that kind of power. There's a judgment on this nation. We're still, listen, even after Roe v. Wade got overturned, we're still murdering thousands of babies every day in this country. We're still doing it. And we're doing it legally. In some cases, the government's even paying for it. And we expect somehow God's going to turn us around. That's not happening. God says, come out from among them, be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. You see, now is the time to return to the old paths. But we won't do it. Israel wouldn't do it. Israel wouldn't do it in the book of Isaiah. They wouldn't do it in the time of Jeremiah either. And as a result, God's judgment came down upon them. I'm reminded of some young men who were talking about their favorite Bibles. One young man stood up and said, I like my mother's translation. That's my favorite one. And what he was saying is she lives it. You're a walking sermon. Live it. We've gotten away from moms that pray. We've gotten away from moms reading scripture, reading it to their children. We've gotten a long way away from dads reading scripture and their kids hearing their dad read the scripture and their, and their dad praying for their children. Your kids ought to hear you pray for them. They need to hear it. But no, dad's got too many other things to do. I can't expect me to pray. I, man, I want to go hunting. Or fishing or baseballing or footballing or whatever. We've got so many other things to do. But remember this. Isaiah was not a backwoods preacher. Got the same message for three years. He's not a backwoods preacher. He'd preached in the palace. He had preached to kings. I mean, this man was well known in the country. He was known in high places, and he's bringing the message. But to the people, might as well have been a backwoods preacher. They weren't going to pay attention. They were going to do what they wanted to do, regardless of what he had to say. So this passage reminds us of the reliability of Scripture and the requirements of a holy walk and the reasoning 
of a holy God. Basically, it came down to this. When the Egyptians and the Ethiopians are led to captivity, the people of Israel will say what is said here in verse 6. And the inhabitants of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation. Whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? How shall we escape? Basically, they will say the Assyrians took out the people that we trusted to help us. So how are we going to escape? According to the prophet, the Assyrians were God's tool to bring judgment upon them. I have been listening now for probably the last two months. This is about my fourth time through Revival Praying by Leonard Ravenhill. I've been through it. He wrote the book back in 1961. In 1961, the biggest threat that we knew of at that time, I mean, 1961, I was in like in sixth grade, seventh grade, sixth grade, something like that. And back then, the great fear was communism. And you remember, of course, that Khrushchev, who was the head of Russia at that time, was threatening the United States. Matter of fact, much like several countries are threatening us today with harm. And there was a lot of concern. The problem is, as far as Ravenhill was writing, was the lack of concern among God's people. We were wanting the government to take care of anything and didn't realize that the problem was judgment upon America. And one of the things that he says in the book, he says, will we even be around by the next election, which would have been 1964? Now, some of us have forgotten a lot of that back then. When there was a small little island just south of Florida, that was the concern where our destruction was going to come from. All our attention was on that one island down there. As a matter of fact, in 1963, we almost did go to war. According to the documentaries that I've seen on it, we were within minutes of a nuclear war with Russia when it was finally stopped. But back to Ravenhill, he was trying to get people to understand the necessity of getting a hold of God and praying God will fulfill his word. How long will he continue to put up with the wickedness that was abounding in the churches then? yet alone today. The Bible's pretty plain. The Bible, for instance, says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that everybody gets the message, even says before that, for there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. America's problem is a sin problem, first of all. People's problem is a sin problem. That's why everybody needs a Savior. Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And the Bible says, And the wages of sin is death. And he says, But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God offers mankind a gift. It's eternal life. 
and he gives the invitation for you to take it. Does he offer it to everybody or just a few? He offers it to everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have no time for people telling us that God's a deceiver. And even though he says whosoever, he doesn't mean whosoever. He didn't really die for the world. He just died for a few people in the world. No, God died for everybody. Christ went to that cross for everyone. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And listen, his invitation is for everyone. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. God means what he says. You want heaven, you can have it. God wants you to have it. How? Come to Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him to save you. And he's promised he'll do it. You said, well, what should I pray? No, no, no. you're missing it. Trust him. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he saves you. It's not that you realize you can pray what most of us would think were all the right words and still die and go to hell because with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. You've got to believe right about Jesus, what he did for you, that it was a complete complete work to pay for your salvation that he died for your sins he was buried he rose three days later from the dead you put your trust in him he gives you eternal life and makes you one of his children that's the promise of the word of God Jesus said he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God Bible declares for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, get this, a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Praise his name. So the Bible declares in Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. No wonder that the writer of the book of Hebrews said, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, there is no escape if you don't come to Jesus. Right. And you see, people want to hide in their good works and their church membership. Uh, they want to hide in their superior intellect or whatever. No, no, it's in Christ. Just like Israel wanted to hide in Egypt. They wanted to hide in Ethiopia in order for protection from destruction from the Assyrians. No, no, no. Let God be your God. By taking his son as your savior and he's promised eternal life. Too many look at God and they just see him as a God of mercy, but he's a holy God. And he must judge sin. He's promised to judge sin. I look in Noah's day, God, God brought down a lot of water over a disbelieving world. Because man's righteousness will never do and man's wickedness demands God's judgment. In Lot's day, God rained fire and brimstone upon the iniquities of Sodom. In Isaiah's day, God raised up the Assyrians and used them as his weapon to chasten Israel. In 70 AD, God let loose the Roman armies against the Christ-rejecting inhabitants of Jerusalem. And in days to come, God says this in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel. The reality is judgment's coming. Salvation in Christ, that's what everyone can have. But he's not going to make you make that choice. If you want it, you can have it. Don't delay. For what is a man advantaged if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Chapter 27 and verse 1, boast not thyself of tomorrow. That's a Proverbs. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 29 and verse 1, he that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Where is deliverance to be found? From the wrath of God. Only in the Lord. Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. Isaiah's message was not a message that would make him popular. <laughs> it was a repetitive message about judgment. Here's, a, here's an amazing thing. God would send his prophet to Israel, whether it be Isaiah or Jeremiah or any of the other prophets, those prophets would come in and preach judgment to Israel. And it says over and over again, and the people hearkened not, or they would not hear him. You see it over and over again in the prophets. And one day, God calls a prophet by the name of Jonah, not to go to Israel, but to go up to a bunch of heathen pagan people in Nineveh. He doesn't give them a long message. He only gave them one message. And that is, in 40 days, you'll be destroyed. That's it. He doesn't even tell them how to get saved. They heard the message from the man of God. They believed it all the way up to the king. And that whole city got right with God. That judgment that was coming in 40 days was delayed for over 120 years because these people got right with God. I've got news for you. There are going to be a lot of people at the rescue missions going on to heaven. A lot of people who, you know, down and out and on the streets, but somebody went by and told them about Jesus and they put their trust in Christ, they're going to heaven. While a whole lot of folks looking real good sitting in a church but they've not humbled themselves to recognize themselves as the sinners they are and turn to Jesus Christ or they're going to die and go to hell because they won't come to the Savior. Judgment didn't have to be here. Didn't have to be. They could have gotten right. God would have protected them. Instead, his judgment fell. It still comes to getting right with God. In Isaiah 58, 1, the Bible declares, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. Show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sin. Today we who are preachers are called to thunder out the gospel of Jesus Christ. The man is a sinner on his way to hell and deserving it. It's not a matter. You say, well, I haven't been as bad as some other people. No, you've been just as bad as everybody. Yeah, but you church people are perfect. No, we're not, but at least we came to Jesus. And we have heaven because by faith we took Christ as our Savior. Yeah, this pantless prophet 
Didn't see a whole lot of good things take place. But it's because the people wouldn't listen. Had they listened, they would have been spared. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Dear God, deal with hearts today. It still gets down to your word. You would think that we would be smart enough today in just looking down through history. You would think we'd be smart enough today to recognize that your word has always proven itself true. Whether it be in the secular matters that it deals with, like history, physical things, so on, that, Lord, it's been right about all the spiritual things, too. You would think that somebody with any intelligence at all would see their need for Christ and turn to Jesus and be saved. And only the stubborn rebellion of their own hearts would keep them away from you. Lord, please, I know you'll save anybody that will come to you today by faith. Lord, please, may some decide to turn to Jesus and be saved. I pray, Father, for believers that already know you. And yet, for some reason, they think that because they're saved by grace, that there's really, it's not that important whether or not they walk according to your word. I know they're going to heaven whether they walk according to your word or not, but they're going to stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And as Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Have your way in every heart, I plead in Jesus' name.